Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 22nd, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor at Park Road Baptist Church with Amy Jacks Dean. His sermon this week is entitled, The Princess and the Pauper. On August the 31st, 1997, the world stood still with the tragic news, Princess Diana was dead, killing one of Great Britain's most loved royals. The high-speed automobile collision was studied for years. The princess's boyfriend, Dodi Fayed, who was also killed, and his father was also killed, and his father conceived of a conspiracy by the British Secret Intelligence Service, though an official investigation determined the accident was caused by the alcohol-impaired chauffeur. Even the Royal Mercedes was no match for a concrete bridge pillar met head-on at excessive speed. Global mourning ensued, and even in Birmingham, the namesake on this side of the pond, not Birmingham in England. Sunday morning worship included a thanksgiving for Di's beautiful life and mourning for her tragic passing. Now, I thought it odd. I'm sorry. I thought it odd that one so far removed from the life and the concerns of a southern church would be singled out for praise but she was a princess. Well, her death was a tragedy, and her family rightly grieved, but so did the family of Mrs. Jeffords, an elderly Birmingham native who had spent her life cleaning the homes of the nobility of that affluent community. She had been known to my church the subject of recent financial assistance and personal care by our members, and she had died the same night. But there was no grieving Mrs. Jeffords. There was no thanksgiving. Well, call it brash or youthful haughtiness or something, a subtle critique of our pretentious concern, but I couldn't help myself in my morning prayer I offered thanksgiving for both, giving thanks that on the same day the gates of heaven celebrated with the very same fanfare the homecoming of a princess and the black maid from Birmingham, Alabama. Stephen J. Patterson says of Jesus, he was a social radical through word and deed, he undermined human values and institutions that created distinctions of belonging and distinctions of exclusion. The unclean were made clean, the shamed were honored. He made royalty out of beggars and prostitutes and maybe maids from Birmingham, Alabama. To the poor, he was good news. In him, Christians discovered a gracious God whose table includes all, but especially those excluded from human tables. 
Jesus was a radical, and he was powerful. But what was his real power? What made him such a towering figure across a rural landscape of paupers and peasants? And why did even priests and politicians fear him? In one commentary, I read these words. The stilling of the storm affirms that Jesus Christ is the ruler over all nature. This may have been the main function of the story as it first circulated among the miracle-seeking common folk who flocked to Jesus. Was that his power? Is the truth that we are to take from these stories I've just told our children that with a spoken word, he controlled the barometric pressure and the air temperature, that by his presence he could govern homostasis, that is the clotting of blood and brain chemistry, that by his touch the minions of Satan's fled for the hills or into the swine as the case may be. Was that his great power? Commenting on these miracle stories, Dr. Bill O'Brien of Birmingham notes, the wonder of the miracle took precedence over the man. For so many, it still does. We love our miracle stories, are still enamored with the phenomenal. Human beings seem inexorably drawn to raw, brute power. Is this the power, Mark? is showing us in these stories. In our post-enlightenment, post-modern world, though, it's not just non-believers who are skeptical of such claims. Many thoughtful Christians are confused or frustrated, skeptical in their own right of such stories which often only serve to separate the church from a world of rational thought. My concern is that no matter how you need to hear these miracle stories, the miracle is still taking precedence over Jesus' real power, which was to affect an even greater change than the wind and the waves. Jesus' power was greater than ruling over nature. This sermon series that we are into this year we are taking larger swaths of scripture than we might ordinarily preach. So we have these three miracle stories together today to consider. I hope you will find it as helpful as I did, however, to hear them as part of Mark's overall gospel understanding. These stories, as Mark ties them together, powerfully but subtly reveal the work of transformation that Jesus sought for his culture so long ago. In a stormy sea, among the tombs, with two sick women, Mark makes it clear Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God was powerful indeed. First story. There was a tempest brewing in ancient Israel. The Romans could not have cared less about it except that this religious storm was about to shake the peace of Jerusalem. All of Jesus' first followers were Jews, but in the aftermath of his death, that identity was changing. 
as these followers increasingly became known as Christians. And as the good news spread around the ancient world, the conflict was inevitable. As the church tried to clarify who it was, Jewish or Christian, Hebrew or Greek, Israel or the kingdom of God. A theologian we know as Mark was writing the Jesus story and in a miracle of the calming of the sea, he found an effective means of naming Jesus' power. The ripe symbolism in this story makes Mark's telling unmistakably literary in character. You ought to go home and read them and make careful note of the language in these three stories. Look at the way Mark tells the story. In the ancient world, the sea stood for chaos, uncertainty, fear. It was dark and aboding. It was the home of those animals no one understood. It was chaos. And Mark is the first writer to refer to Lake Tiberias as a sea, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus encouraged his disciples to cross to the other side of the sea, which is not just a geographical reference. All the land on the east side of the Sea of Galilee was inhabited inhabited by those Gentiles. So the disciples were hesitant, as Ched Myers points out, because all the power of segregation opposed this journey. Us, them, Jews, Gentiles, the chosen, the goyim. One of the earliest symbols of the Christian church was a ship. So as the church moved across the sea, apprehensively toward the Gentiles, the disciples saw Jesus stilling this storm, if not calming their own doubts. The Apostle Paul would later say it this way, Jesus is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one, breaking down the hostility between us. Jesus calmed the storm. Jews and Gentiles in the first century, blacks and whites in the American South in the 20th century, conservatives and liberals today. What was Jesus' power? I submit to you that calming a gale force storm would be far easier than healing the breaches that divide us and ruling nature in the grand scheme of things a lot less important. He is our peace. Second story. On that other side, they were clearly in foreign territory. The demoniac, the man possessed, lived among the dead and kept company with the swine. Two unambiguous points of ritual impurity in the Jewish code. The prophet Isaiah had caricatured Israel's rebelliousness as people who sit inside tombs and eat swine's flesh, tombs' flesh, together. The allusion would have been hard to miss for a Jewish audience, but it was the man's possessed name that clues the reader to the real point of the narrative. 
a legion. A legion was a Roman military division, officially 6,000 soldiers. And once we are attuned to the military metaphor, we can't help but notice that Mark refers to the herd of pigs. But you don't herd pigs. The Greek term herd means a band of military recruits. Mark is telling us something. When Jesus dismisses the demons, this is another military term, and the charge of the swine is reminiscent of a surge of troops. These military images would have been instantly recognizable to any first century Jew, and they would have been as clear to them as any political cartoon that Jesus is taking on the Roman occupation of Palestine. There's a complete body of scholarship devoted to demon possession in the ancient world, identifying this condition as a reflection of economic exploitation or the person who is demon-possessed as a painful protest against oppression. The man went to the tombs as a protest against the hand of Rome. So what would be the display of greater power in that day? Naming one evil spirit or calling out the world's only superpower, claiming that their days were numbered, that a new kingdom, a new rule, a new kind of peace was at hand. The third miracle is no less imbued with symbolism, and the two healings function as one lesson for Mark. You can't miss it. The two stories are clearly in parallel. The girl is 12 years old. The woman has bled for 12 years. The child's father is the ruler of the synagogue, Impure from her bleeding, the woman could not have come near a synagogue. The girl lived in the comfort of cultural respectability and personal wealth. The unclean woman was shamed by her religion and destitute in poverty, shamed by her culture as well. No sincere rabbi would have spoken to her, much less come in contact with her, but four times in three verses, she and Jesus touch. En route to visit the daughter of the synagogue leader, Jesus interrupts that important mission with a more important one to engage a daughter of nameless insignificance. And because she takes precedence for him, he is too late. The child is dead when Jesus arrives and his last words to the old woman are still in the air. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Still, we can hear those words when Mark tells us this religious family erupted in disbelieving laughter at Jesus' suggestion that the child is only sleeping. Do you hear all the irony? It's all too obvious. In a culture that honored customs and traditions and institutions that created distinctions of belonging and exclusion, Jesus offered the unconditional, universal love of God. 
raise the dead, or defy the deadly institutional grip that religion holds over many people's lives, which is the greater power? A theologian and writer we know as Mark put together three sensational stories, not to praise the brute force of Jesus, his control over nature and demons and death, The power of Jesus is not in question for this writer who introduces us to Jesus as the Son of God. But something even more important is at work for Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it has the power to heal our greatest divisions. But in doing so, it will also confront our most beloved institutions our assumptions of truth, our partisan loyalties, our claims to national pride and security, our myths of greatness, be it a Pax Romana or American exceptionalism. Mark is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus brings revolution. But then Jesus came to his hometown, the scripture says. He began to teach in the synagogue, and they were astounded. Where did this man come from? What is this wisdom? What deeds of power are being done at his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own people. And he could do no deed of power there and he was amazed at their unbelief. So here's the thing. Where the people know Jesus best, where he is a household name, He could do no deed of power. It is our perennial question. Will we continue to praise the princesses and forget the paupers? Will we domesticate Jesus like they did? Will we worship him as a sensational miracle worker, praise power, using it to tame the radical Jesus? Or will the unconditional grace of God and the power of sacrificial love be our way too? And which is more likely to change the world? His power still depends on what we believe. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.